0: Well Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's a joy to see all of you here and to be together as God's joined us together this morning. When I was a when I was a kid, my my grandfather was probably the most joyful person that I that I that I know, that I had that I knew and that I've probably ever met. And um, I there's a there's a pastor. Uh, that, I, that I follow from afar. His name is Ray Ortland, And he, he often says that his father was the most joyful man that he ever met in his whole life. And the point of this series that we've been going through this Advent, and what we do every Advent season, is we spend the season to slow down and reflect on how the character of Christ is growing in us. And so this year, we've been asking the question by looking um, at the emotional life of Jesus... And we've been uh, studying and looking at the gospel accounts and showing how Jesus himself was a very emotional man, that he felt things and he felt them very deeply. We've looked at the compassion of Jesus. We've looked at the love of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the anger of Jesus. And this morning, to conclude our our study, we're going to look at the joy of Jesus. The joy of Jesus. Jesus was a joyful man. We must remember... That Jesus, as the God-man, is truly and fully God, and that he is also truly man and fully man as well. And the absolute reality of his humanity is seen in the range of emotions that he has, which is very comforting to us, because whatever our condition or our circumstance, we can know that the Lord Jesus knows and understands, Because he's felt the emotions that we have. And as I was reflecting on joy and and joy in my own life and thinking about my grandfather and thinking about Ray Ortlund's father and so on, asking myself the question, what would my kids say? Would my kids say that I'm the most joyful man that they've ever met? I don't think so. You better say that. <laughs> hey, so this morning, we're going to read two different texts. One, we're going to read Luke chapter 10, and the, hey, buddy, hey. go have a seat. Yeah. We're going to read Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 21 to 22, and we're also going to look at John 15, uh, verses 7 through 11, and we're going to see two different kinds of, of, jo- of joy that we see in the Lord Jesus. And hopefully, we can um, be conformed by the Word of God, and that joy can, can permeate our lives as well. The John chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter ten, verses twenty one and twenty two. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding." And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows a son. And no one who knows a son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. Or anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then John chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning singing songs of of rejoicing, singing songs about the advent of joy to the world, singing songs of having happy hearts that rejoice and are glad, And Father, we just pray that it would be more true. We pray that the joy of the Lord, the joy that Jesus himself has, would be ours. And that it would be ours, and we would lay hold of it by abiding in the love of the Father. We would lay hold of it by faith. So I pray and we pray that... Faith and love and joy would be kindled as a result of the preaching of your word, that you would speak life into our hearts, you would speak joy into our hearts as your word is proclaimed. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Two points, the joy of the Lord and the joy of Jesus, the joy of the Lord and the joy of Jesus. Point one. Listen to Psalm 135. Psalm 135 says, I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. Psalm 115 says this Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46.10 says, I will accomplish my good pleasure. The NIV says Isaiah 46.10 this way, I will do all that I please. Our God is a God who does what he pleases, and what he does pleases him. God acts in perfect, sovereign Freedom. That means that everything he does is not to shore up some deficiency in himself, but rather everything he does is to express his delight. All that he does pleases him. What's interesting is that the Bible connects God's power to God's pleasure, God's power is connected to his pleasure. We could think of it like this, that God's sovereign freedom is a sovereignty or is a power that paves the way to his own joy. His sovereignty is exercised to bring about his own good pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 again, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And, and Paul makes this same connection between power and joy for us in First Timothy uh, uh, 6.15. He says, he who is blessed is the only sovereign, the king of kings, the lord of lords. The connection, do you see it? The one who is blessed, the one who is happy. God is, Paul is telling us that God is the happy one. He's the blessed one. He's the joyful one. And then he connects it to his power that he's the sovereign one, he's the king, he's the Lord. All those words are describing the exercise of his power and his authority. And that power and that authority is being exercised by a happy and a joyful God. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says, the freedom of God consists in the fact that no other cause other than himself, produces his acts and no external obstacle impedes him. That his own goodness is the root from which they all grow and his own omnipotence is the air in which they flower. Nothing can impede what God intends to do and everything God does is for his own pleasure. He's not constrained by an outside force. He's not constrained by an outside will, an outside object to somehow coerce his actions. His actions all stem from his sovereign independence. His actions are an expression of his great delight. So what does that mean for us? What does this this theological treatise mean for us? It means... That all of his gracious actions toward us are not compelled by some other outside force. Rather, he simply delights to come to us in his son. It, It means that his grace towards us is a sovereign grace. Meaning, his grace towards us is his accomplishing his own good pleasure. God is not a morose God. He's not sad or disappointed or chagrined in coming to us. He's absolutely, completely delighted to come to us. He doesn't act in any way other than what he pleases and delights and desires to do. And his grace towards us is his very pleasure. This is what Paul is, is telling us in the beginning of Ephesians. He's telling us that, that God is well-pleased, delighted, joyful, happy, to lovingly pour out all his grace towards us in Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. Happy is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Delighted is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us who has brought his delight, his joy, his happiness to us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In love, he did it. The great love with which he had for us, the happy God came to us and blessed us in the love that he had for us. According to the purpose of his will. He does everything that is according to the counsel of his will. Everything he does, he pleases. And it was his perfect will to bless us in his beloved son. So what does it mean on Christmas Eve? It means that it was most pleasing to God. It means that it was the purpose of his will. It means that the blessed God was happy to send his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin in the humblest and meekest of conditions, in a cattle stall in a tiny village, to be raised by poor parents, to have to run for his life as an infant so that he could grow to be the true man of God, to live the life that we never would live and to die the death that we deserve to die. That was the will of the Lord. That's what God did in his sovereign freedom. That's point one. That is the joy of the Lord the joy of jesus jesus is a happy and joyful savior jesus is a happy and joyful savior the context that we read luke 10:21 in is comes right after the return of the 72 but Jesus has sent out his disciples and his disciples return back to them to him and they're just ecstatic. They're just jumping out of their skin because Jesus has given them actual authority. And this authority has 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 resulted in, in even the demons being subject to their name. And they come back to Jesus and they're just they're completely excited. And, and Jesus gives them this, this word of this word of warning. He says, Don't rejoice. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus himself turns and it says that, uh, that in verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. This is a, this is a picture here of, of Jesus in his spirit being a man of joy, a man of delight. It's a kind of dancing kind of joy. It's a joy that's just it's, it's exuberant in himself. It's the same word that is used in the Magnificat in, in Luke 1.47. It says, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's the, it's the same word that Peter uses in that, in that, in that wonderful verse in 1 Peter 1 1.8. It says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the kind of joy that our Savior has. He's delighted. He's a a delighted kind of savior. Listen to B.B. Warfield. Just describe Jesus' joy. He says, Jesus did not prosecute his work in a state of mental depression. He said, his advent into the world was good news of great joy. He says, we read that Jesus came eating and drinking and accordingly was malignantly called a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And Warfield concludes, he says, this certainly does not encourage us to think of him as habitually sorrowful. He was glad. He, was, he, he, he ate and drank with people. He was a friend of sinners. He was a happy man. The definition of the word that's used here is to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be glad, to be over." Joyed. And there's a point here for us. Because as we said at the beginning, Jesus was f- truly and fully God. And he was truly and fully man. And we should remember that Jesus here, especially in Luke's gospel. Go through Luke's gospel this week and just see how the power of the Holy Spirit rests upon Jesus. We can see here that Jesus is exulting in the Holy Spirit that the spirit has come upon this man and the spirit of coming upon this man makes this man to rejoice and to delight and to be exuberant and to be overjoyed. That's good news for us because we have that same spirit. That spirit lives and resides in us and gives us this same kind of joy, the ability to rejoice and be overjoyed like our savior was. Warfield again, I just have to. Our Lord did not come into the world to be broken by the power of sin and death, but to break it. He came as a conqueror with gladness of the imminent victory in his heart. For the joy that was set before him, he was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. He did not prosecute his work in some kind of doubtful way. Neither did he do it hesitantly. Rather, he exulted in the Holy Spirit. As he contemplated the ways that God was bringing many sons to glory. The word here is a strong one and conveys the idea of exuberant gladness, a gladness which fills the heart, and is intimated that on this occasion at least, this exaltation was a product in Christ and therefore in his human nature, an operation of the Holy Spirit. Who we must suppose to have always been working in the human soul of Christ, sustaining and strengthening it it says i think warfield's right in helping us to understand the meaning of this passage excuse me that he's exulting in the holy spirit while he's contemplating the ways of god and bringing many men to glory look at the text It says in 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He's contemplating the nature of the gospel. He's contemplating the nature of the kingdom. He's contemplating the ways that God is bringing many sons to glory. And that is what makes his heart rejoice. He's inwardly dancing with joy, but not because he sees that his disciples have the power to exercise demons, but because he sees his disciples, who he calls little children, having been shown the kingdom. More explicitly, Jesus is marveling and delighting in the upside-down nature of the kingdom. He's delighted that it's not the wise and the understanding who received the kingdom, but it's little children And that, of course, is a metaphor for the the nature of the kingdom of God. What does Jesus see here that delights him? He sees that he who is is last is first. He sees that he who becomes least will become greatest. He he realizes the, the nature of the gospel that he who wishes to save his life must lose it. He sees that whoever does not come to him like a little child cannot come at all. He contemplates that only those that are weak with sin. Only those that are weary with the state of things. Have a place with him. And it delights him. It delights him that the kingdom comes to the downtrodden. It delights him that the kingdom comes to the poor. It delights him that the kingdom comes to those that are waiting and longing for a savior like Simeon was longing for the consolation of Israel. It delights him that God is a gracious kind of God that comes to the meek, the weak, and the humble. It delights him. He delights in the way that God does things. And of course, this is a metaphor of his own life and mission because he is the king of heaven. He's the prince of life. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the first. He's the last. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And he becomes small. He becomes so very, very small. Seemingly insignificant even. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power becomes a zygote becomes an infant. An infant, a child to parents who are socially suspect. And he shows us the way of the kingdom. He shows us the upside down nature of things. You know what that means, don't you? You see the meaning of Christmas, don't you? When you look into that cattle stall and you see Christ the Savior in swaddling cloth, what do you see? When you see the Lord Jesus on the cross suffering for you, what do you see? You see that weakness is the way. But the meaning of Christmas is that God will save the world by becoming weak. And if it's true for him, then it's true for you and me. So let's ask. Let's ask it this way How do we get this kind of joy that Jesus has here? Because that's the goal, right? We want to exult in the Spirit the way Jesus does here. We want to have that kind of rejoicing, the dancing joy of Jesus, Jesus delighting in the way that God does things. It means that we must become weak, we must become least, we must become small. very practically, to become weak, to become small. What are some ways that we do that? We do it when we forgive people. We don't hold grudges any longer. We become insignificant, we become small. The offenses that have been done to us are not as important as we want them to be. It's the upside-down nature of the kingdom. He who wishes to save his life must lose it. To have this kind of rejoicing joy is to rejoice and see the way that God does things is an upside-down nature. It is contrary from the way that the world tells us is the path to freedom and victory. It's the absolute opposite. To find this kind of joy, to find this kind of delight... Must be the path of weakness, the path of following Jesus in his ways. That's the dancing joy of Jesus. But there's another place that we read this morning where we see a different kind of joy that we could call a resting joy or a serene kind of joy that Jesus shows us. And that's John 15. So the resting, the serene joy of Jesus. John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus is telling the disciples there, and Jesus is telling us this morning that our joy is incomplete unless we have his joy in us. He's telling the disciples there and he's telling us this morning that he has a profound joy that he wants to give to us. As far as the Lord Jesus is concerned, he wants pleasure and happiness and joy for his people. A pleasure and a joy that can only be found in him. Maybe this is new to you. Maybe for some of you, Christianity was was, was used or is used as as a weapon to control your behavior. Maybe that's your experience as a child or maybe that's your experience as a teenager or even as a young adult that that Christianity is a a moral straitjacket and it's used to coerce you and to control your behavior. But that's not the desire of of Jesus in this text. Jesus' ultimate desire for his people is that they would have his joy and his pleasure his happiness would be theirs it is the end it is the aim of the christian life these are jesus's some of jesus's final words after 3 years of walking with his disciples you know just a couple of chapters earlier in john 13:21 this is all one long conversation, by the way, these chapters in John. He says that, it says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So we must ask ourselves, is, is Jesus here prone to some kind of mood swing? That in John 13, he's, he's troubled in his spirit. And in John 15, he's saying that he has this abiding joy that he wants to give to his people. No, I don't think so. Because he's troubled in his spirit in John 13, 21. Because truly, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. But by the time we get to John chapter 15, Judas is gone. The one who's going to betray him has, has left. The die has been cast, we could say. And Jesus meditates On this joy that he has, the joy that the writer of Hebrews will tell us, the joy that was set before him, that enabled him, allowed him to endure the cross and despise the, the shame. He gets a fresh glimpse of the joy that's before him, the accomplishment that will be on the cross. He looks forward to see the millions and millions of future lives that will be affected. And then in the next chapter, he gives this beautiful, John chapter 16, he gives this beautiful, wonderful analogy to help us understand this sorrow that's mixed with joy that he's experiencing. He says, Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And then here's this illustration. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. And he says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Do you see the power of this? The power of this. He says that joy and sorrow are intimately related to one another. He says his joy and our joy are born out of the pain of the cross. The joy that was set before him for us is sins forgiven. Right relationship again with God, brought into the life of the triune God. For him, he sees a people, a people that he's bought by his own blood, a people who are his own possession, a glory as he ascends into heaven, a glory from the angels that is above any other glory that has ever been experienced. He sees that kind of joy that's set before him, and it enables him to endure the pain and the wrath of the cross. And he tells us, he tells us how to get this kind of joy. He tells us in just the previous verses of John, uh, in verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. The way in which Jesus has this kind of joy, the way that He has it is because He's abiding in the love of the Father. Some of you have that kind of relationship with the Father. A kind of, that kind of love that you can just rest in. And some of you who are fathers, you know that kind of love that you have for your children, that you have for your sons and daughters. I remember when we first had we started having children and we'd put them to bed, we would sit on the couch and we would just want to go wake them back up just to be with them. I don't think that anymore. I want to just go. <laughs> They're so pleasant when they sleep. <laughs> But oh, that kind of joy—you know what that joy is like—the joy that that, that that Jesus and the Father have, the way that they abide in there—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, 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 it's kind of like this, but it's infinitely greater. It's kind of like this. I have a delight. I have I have I have a, a something I get to experience that that most of you don't get to. It's it's one of the one of the, the joys of being a pastor, and that is doing weddings. And you have a front row seat to see the kind of gaze and the kind of joy that these two people have between one another, when they gaze into each other's eyes and you see the intense love that they have for one another, it's almost like you don't want to look. You almost feel like you're violating something by looking because it's this mutual intensity of love. They're abiding in one another. It's a great love that they have for each other. The love that the Father and the Son have for each other is infinitely greater than that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. They were face to face. They were gazing upon each other with perfect love. They were abiding. Jesus was abiding in the Father's love, and that is what brought him great joy the joy that he had is because he's resting in the love of the Father. Well, let's close with this thought on Christmas Eve. The disciples, they've, they've, been, a, they've been an interesting bunch for those past three years. They've walked with Jesus. Jesus has has taught them, he's he's explained the kingdom to them. And here in Jesus' final hour, at the most difficult time in his life, they scatter. They leave him, they desert him. Some will curse him, even. But he wants to give them his joy, nonetheless. My friends, any other joy will never be full. Any other joy will never be complete. But in him there is fullness of joy. You know the hymn, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but all the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus found in thee. The joyful savior, the joyful Jesus, the God who does whatever he pleases became the man of sorrows. The Jesus who had it all, who was face to face with the father, in the presence of joy everlasting, became the despised and the rejected one, the cursed and forsaken one on a tree. And Isaiah will even tell us that it was the Lord's pleasure to crush him. Isn't that something? That it is the greatest joy of Jesus to give you his joy no matter the cost, will you come to Him this morning? Will you come to Him by faith? Lay hold of that great love, which, with He and the Father and the Unity of the Spirit, love you, and rest in that deep, abiding joy. Let us pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, for sending the Lord Jesus become weak and small for our sake. Thank you that he became the man of sorrows so that we could become people of joy. Help us to rest in it by faith. Give us eyes of faith. We're grateful and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.